Who was Chris Fields on April 18th, 1995, the day before the bombing? Chris Fields was a almost a 10-year veteran of the Oklahoma City Fire Department. By that time, it was already 18 years? Uh, 10 years. Oh, 10 years. Yeah, 10 years. Uh, I got hired July 12th of 85. So I was coming up on 10 years on the job. I was a captain at Fire Station 5. Um, married, mm. going on about eight or nine years of marriage and had a son who had just turned, uh, he was a little over a year old, almost two years old, I guess. Wow. How far are we from station five right now? Uh, right now we are one mile, yeah, less than a mile. Uh, probably one. Well, we're at, uh, basically fourth street, rest right there. And right. it's at, it's at 22nd. So 15 blocks, whatever that is. Sure. Were, were you in EMT also that, uh, at that time? I was going through EMT school at the time of the uh, at the time of the bombing. How long was EMT school in 1995? Not very long. Like a couple not, weeks. Not, yeah, it could, it, I mean it was it was it was. Uh, but we were going uh, like one night a week or two nights only if you were on. You only went when you were on duty, right. so it took a little longer. Wow! But everything back then was like say rookie school was only. I started rookie school July 12th and graduated September. 12th so it's only two months (laughs) so so you started at the fire department in 85 85 yes uh two weeks before i turned 21 so you're 20 years old 20 years old they they don't hire 20 year olds very often anymore do they not not very often yeah so and and where where are you from you from here born and raised right here grew up in uh maine and went most of my school years in dell city and then moved to Moore and graduate, end up graduating from Moore High School in 1982. 1982. Yeah, I'm, you probably weren't born in 1982. I'm not going to answer that question. <laughs> I don't. I don't want. I don't want to. I don't want to make you feel old while mm-hmm. we're while we're sitting here. So, but so I, I think the the um the reasons for wanting to be a firefighter are probably different back in the 80s than they are today. Well, they make a lot more money today. Yeah. They do some cooler things. What what what. What drove you to want to be a firefighter? My in inspiration was kind of different. I grew up, uh, one of my best friends, well, my best friend growing up, his name was Greg Sayer. His father 
was the pastor of our church, South Lindsay Baptist Church. He was also the chaplain for the Oklahoma City Fire Department at the time. So a lot of firefighters went to uh, South Lindsay Church, Baptist Church. So I grew up around, and then on the weekends, if I was with Greg, we'd go with his dad to the fire stations and hang out. And it was just a cool environment uh, to be around growing up. Uh, kind of like, to, well, there's probably more complainers today, but back, everybody loved their job. Yeah. Uh, they were held in such high regard from the public. I mean, it was just all the things that appealed then to a, you know, 12, 13, 14 year old kid. And then, um, graduated high school and went to a couple of years of college and worked for my dad in the oil field a little bit and just thought, okay, I need a direction. I really didn't have a, and I thought, man, I always wanted to. So I applied for the, I applied first for Dell City Fire Department and didn't get hired. And, and how big, is Dell City compared to Oklahoma City? Oh, Dell City's got, I think there may be two fire stations now. Back right. then it was just one fire station. One fire station. They were yeah. hiring three people. And I guess I finished fourth. <laughs> I don't know. That's why I like to tell oh, people. No. But uh, I didn't get hired by Dell City. But within uh, just a couple of months, I got a call from Oklahoma City. And so you didn't have to be an EMT or a paramedic. I mean, a lot of that didn't really matter as much. No, the only thing uh, they gave you like, I think back then you were still getting like five points for military service, but mm -hmm. there was no, uh, matter of fact, when we were, when I first got hired, we were just uh, basic responders. I mean, right. we didn't do anything. Did Did you go to medical calls? We, we went to medical calls. I remember all we do is get off the rig with uh, O2 on wheels. Right. And everybody got oxygen. Yeah. Non-rebreathers for everybody. Everybody got non-rebreather on 10, I think, or 10 or 15, you know. Right, on right. <laughs> oh, goodness. And, uh, uh, that's what we were, we were like. We either were called basic responders or first responders. I don't remember what we were called. But, right, right. Um, there was a few guys that were paramedics on their days off, mm -hmm. but it didn't apply to the fire service. There was sure. nothing. But in the, And how big was Oklahoma City back then? I mean, they're one of the biggest. A lot of people don't know this who are, who are watching this because they're, you know, most people aren't from Oklahoma right. City. But Oklahoma City is one of the largest geographical cities in the United States. 621 right? square miles. In and Oklahoma it, City. And that's huge. That's huge. And, of course, a lot of rural. But, you know, just present day, it became like the 20th largest population-wise in the country. Right. Just right. Uh, everybody moving here, cost of living so good and everything. But uh, I'm trying to think. I think back then we just had 30 stations. Just 30. Well, I 30 want to say stations. just 30, I, yeah, but it huge. may have just been 28 because right. 26s and 29s at the time, stations, right. those were airport and those were private. Right. So right. basically we were 28 stations. Um so Man. even back then, though, that's still that's still, that's still that's a still, big department. Yeah, that's still a big especially department. for out here in the in the in the, in the Bible Belt yep. flyover country. Where yeah, still a big department. Now it's thirty seven, thirty eight fire stations. Yeah, and uh, so it was a uh, and everybody. Don't ask me why. Probably for the benefits because I think I started out at seven something dollars an hour. Seven dollars an hour. I think my first year on the fire department, I made twelve thousand and one dollar, and. uh had to move back home with, give up the apartment, move back home with mom, and because yeah. you know twelve thousand one is not. Yeah, I don't care what I don't care what people say. Well, the cost of living, but doesn't matter. But it's never <laughs> enough, no. especially not for a job. Like I think that. my paycheck was like three hundred dollars right. every two weeks. And so you, you you know firefighters now making to start sixty thousand, seventy thousand. I mean, I've seen some places down in Texas that yeah. are hiring folks at one hundred and thirty. And now with all the overtime. That they're getting right. callback time. The demands and, through the roof. Yeah. 
Right. So it's a, it's a different, I mean, the fire service, I would do it all. It was good to me. You know, we got raises that were very mm-hmm. nice throughout the, you know, it was, it afforded me nice house and put, you know, two kids through school. And so sure. I got, I got no complaints, but, uh, and so, and, and so you're still running calls though for 10 years, even though you're not an EMT, you're still running medical calls oh, yeah. all day long, 24 hour shifts, 24 hours. Yep. 24 hour shifts, uh, had three, three shifts, three platoons. Or yeah. Whatever you want to call it. And so you're seeing some terrible stuff. No, even, even, even in those days, you come back to the station after running five-year-old who just drowned, mm-hmm. got thrown out of a vehicle. What's the attitude like in the station in 1989 uh, when something like that happens? Not talked about. Just go on down. I always tell people my very first call ever was, uh, it became what we would call a routine call eventually over the years. But uh, our shift change was at 7 a.m. So my first shift, I think I was sitting out in the parking lot at 5.30, you know. Yeah. That kind of deals. Don't want to yeah. be late. So Absolutely. Well, it's still like that today, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. But about, I think at like 6 a.m., I saw him stirring around inside the station making coffee and stuff. And I think the station officer on the blue shift at the time saw me out in the parking lot, told me to come out there and told me to come on in. Right. Go and put your stuff on the rig. Well, I didn't know not two or two, so I just did it. So not long after that, the lights clicked on. We were toned out on a full arrest. Full first day, first day, and it wasn't even my shift. What in my crew? And uh, you know, five minutes later, I'm pushing on somebody's chest and cracking sternum and cracking ribs, and mm-hmm. you know, that's I'm a 20 year old who's never seen a dead person, you know. And uh, so we get back to the station, man. I'm kind of like, God, and we didn't save him, you know, it wasn't a save. Um, so I'm just kind of like, you know, and. All they're doing, and like when our shift starts coming on, our guys are there. We're when I'm getting back, and uh, like the officer uh, says, "Hey, y'all need to retrain this guy, man. We couldn't save him, and all he did was, yeah, I think he broke the guy's ribs, and we heard him cracking his. Oh you no! Know, I mean, it's just all, and you don't get it. Yeah, I don't get it. It's such that dark humor. I learned to get it over the years. Yeah, but it's just, um, it's a coping mechanism. There's nothing wrong with it, but it was a, it was a whole new world to right. joke about somebody being being dead or passed away and right. over the years you learn okay i i see the i see the need for the for the the humor and mm-hmm. and why they do it and 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 this just adds up 10 years i mean at least up until the the, the april 19th but yeah. uh um 10 years you're running these calls and and kind of dealing with it the same way right and, and everything was a for me you know there were some guys that came from other departments or like that, you know, but for me, everything was a first time call, you know, the first time I made somebody that had blown their face off suicide attempt, mm-hmm. you know, we made one, he actually, he was alive when we got there, um, had blown half his face off, you know, so all that stuff I'm seeing car wrecks with fatalities, uh, <clears throat> car wrecks with people walking away that shouldn't have, I mean, all that kind of stuff was, uh, totally, totally new to me. And, and yeah. these guys have been seeing it for, and, you know, and, I always talk about the, the the way I was raised on the fire service, these old smoke eaters, and uh, it's just the way they were raised. It doesn't mean they were callous or hard-hearted and didn't have empathy and sympathy. It's just the way they were raised, and it's just the way they taught to You can come back here and dwell on it, but I don't want you dwelling on it because if we get a working house fire, we get a call where I'm going to need you. Mm-hmm. I need your mind 100% focused on this call, not on the the dead child we made 
30 minutes ago. Right. I mean, that was just, that was just what was instilled in you. And, uh, and, and for good reason, but there has, you know, and well, I know we'll talk about later. There, there's now the times have changed. There's better outlets and there has to be, but back then that's just, that is just the way it was. And it was like I say, it was with no hard hearted hardness or callousness or anything. It was just, just the way it was. And so 1995 comes around and you have a, a baby boy mm-hmm. and um, what was that like? Was that the coolest thing in the uh, world or what? Yeah, it was the coolest thing, uh, coolest thing ever. It was yeah. uh, for me, maybe not for my wife who did 16 hours of labor. Oh, but, no. Uh, for me, it was great. Uh, but no, it was. It was, uh, you know, I was. I grew up in playing sports and as a, as a dad – you can't wait I, to play catch I with them. Can't wait to play catch. I can't Ugh. wait for them to be in little league so I can coach them. It's just just a cool feeling. And yeah, uh, yeah he was born uh, December of ninety three. December of ninety three. Yeah, so. that, that's amazing. I mean, obviously, you know, my son's sitting back there, mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's man, I can't wait for this kid to get older so I can throw throw a football <laughs> at his yeah. face and see if he can catch it. Yeah, yeah. You know, so 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 amazing. I, I mean, I don't know. Kids, kids are like that. I mean, I kids got a daughter too, and you got a, do- a daughter. As I've well. got, I've got two sons. Oh, you got two sons. I just, and I just had a grandson other? too. Holy, uh, you a grandpa? I'm a papa. Yeah. He's, he's, he's a, he's a, <laughs> you he, talk he, about that's better than kids. He, he he's a papa. So then, so that was April 18th, mm-hmm. 1995. That's who you were. That's who I was. And then April 19th rolls around. Um, Lennon, pull up that. Um, that one, uh, the, the, the one, the one YouTube video, it's only 30 seconds long. So this is just a quick little recap. And then we got, we got an audience all over the place. And so, um, Lennon, go, go ahead and throw the, throw this up. I think this is from, uh, history channel. Maybe it's about 30 seconds long. Go ahead, buddy. On April 19th, 1995, Timothy McVeigh, an American Gulf war veteran, shocked America when he committed what was at that time the most devastating terrorist attack on American soil. I think we were just in this that shot. is the story of the Oklahoma City bombing. On April 19, 1995, a rental truck filled with homemade explosives detonated outside the Alfred P. Murrow Federal Building in Oklahoma City. The blast caused catastrophic damage, leaving 168 people dead and hundreds more injured. So that's the uh, that's that's kind of the recap. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, this video could go on for another hour or right. something like it, or you could sit here for ten hours and 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 talk about the story. Um, we're not really here to think about how this affected me, but I, it, the difference between you and me is probably as far away as one could get. I I was never a school skipper, and I skip school this day, oh. and I only skip school to stay home and sleep. Mm-hmm. And I vividly remember waking up and seeing um, that the the news had been is dominated with this story, mm-hmm. and um, it was the first time I'd ever I'd ever seen anything like that. And, and I don't think really until maybe in the last couple of years of my life I realized it was probably the first time most people had had seen something like that. And so th- this is the Oklahoma City bombing. This is the um, the, the, the end of this video and this little shot that you're looking at here is the Murrah building, which is a federal building. Mm-hmm. How far away are we from, from that right now? Uh, oh, quarter mile. If that, yeah, a couple of blocks. And so this is, uh, just, just down the street here in, uh, uh, downtown Oklahoma city. Um, terrible, 
terrible day in our our, in our nation's history, and even worse that it was domestic. I I think that yeah, that was the uh, early on. It was because of the current times in 1995. The first thought was that there was Middle Eastern involvement. Right. I think they even even people were saying eyewitnesses were saying the guys were you know uh, olive skin. They were like you know Middle Eastern descent, and so you know it was that little bit of. You know, USA anger, you know. Right. It's crazy what people come up yeah. with and then, know, to uh, fill in the gaps. And it was amazing how much more pissed you got when you found out it was uh, right. know, our own, you know, domestic. It was our own people. And they found out quick. But we'll come, we'll, but, yeah, but, yeah. But, but we'll, we'll come back to that. So walk us through that day. Uh, Wednesday. I always remember it was a Wednesday. because. That's it, well, it's uh, Wednesday, April 19th, 1995. You might want to check me if you can Google that up, but I'm pretty sure that's correct. I'm sure. And I'm the, sure the reason you know. I remember is because at the fire station, you had different responsibilities for different days. One day was cleaning the rigs. One day, well, Wednesdays, Wednesdays at Station 5 was uh, yard maintenance day. So there were guys out mowing and weed eating. Mm-hmm. And um, about nine. Or, already that time in the morning. Yeah, so yeah. Eight, shift, o'clock, eight o'clock in the morning. Shift change was seven. Uh, of course, I get there at six, like I always did, and relieve the other shift. And we're just kind of um, our newest guy at the time, uh, Marcus Evans, great guy. He, uh, we told him he had to cook since he was a new guy, and mm-hmm. I remember we, and he's one of those guys that wants to do perfect job one hundred percent of the time. So if he thinks anything's, you know, he's just a hard worker guy. And I think we told him that uh, we looked at the clock and saw it was about nine o'clock. And we told him that I was one of the, there was three officers, three captains at station five. I was Mm -hmm. the captain on the hazard materials unit that day. Right. And uh, the station officer, John Cruz, we, we told Marcus, we said, major Cruz likes to have his, uh, captain Cruz likes to have his breakfast by nine o'clock. Just kind of, you know, just to kind of razz him a little bit. And of course he freaked out and, uh, so I remember, cause we remember looking at the clock thinking it was nine o'clock. And then just shortly after that, we, we felt it. We heard the blast. Uh, the station windows rattled. And I think our first thought was, uh, at the time, there was a board and ice cream plant right next to the fire station, uh, which was a bonus. And, uh, we thought maybe a train had derailed. Right. Cause the trains are, the trains right there. That's right. right yeah. So we thought maybe a train had derailed and hit the station because that's how hard the station rattled. And, uh, Went outside the east kitchen door and didn't see anything. So we looked back to the south and saw the uh, large plume of smoke. You could see it from we could Station s- 5. S- yeah, we could see it from Station 5. We knew we'd be dispatched, so we didn't even wait for orders. We self-dispatched ourselves. And um, and one of the reasons I remember it's Wednesday, as we turned the corner, if you came out of Station 5 to get to downtown, you had to make a hairpin turn because it, mm-hmm. it faced north. So you make a hairpin turn to come back south. And as we did, one of our guys was weed eating. <clears throat> we had to stop and get him because he had his uh, hearing protection on. He had his back to downtown. He said, you can talk to him today. He'll tell you. He actually felt the rush of wind. But he thought it was a, a jet from Tinker doing doing the sonic, you know, right. whatever they do when they break the oh, sp- wow. speed of sound and that sonic boom. Right. He actually thought that was what it was. He just kept on weed eating. So we had to stop and get him and – uh and, on. So, and so how do you know where to get? You're just go well, towards the smoke. Yeah. And they, <clears throat> there was a lot of confusion at first because they said the federal courthouse, which is about within a block of the federal building. Mm-hmm. So 
there was confusion over the radio, whether it was the federal courthouse or the federal building. Um, so we knew we were heading to either Fifth Street or Fourth Street. I mean, that was at that at that time was the was that building considered your district? Or no. was that, is that Station One? That would have been Station One. Mm-hmm. Station, matter of fact, Station One was the first in from that side, and then like Station Six and Station Five were coming in from the east side. Okay. Um, station Four from the north side. Old Station Four used to be downtown, mm-hmm. it's way out northeast now, but it used to be downtown. And uh, so I think there was almost everybody self dispatch on that first alarm. I don't think anybody waited for the tone out. Mm-hmm. So. So there's just tons of radio traffic and, uh, it's weird. I play when I, when I get to travel and speak, I play this little video montage deal. And in the montage, you can barely hear a voice. And I really never picked it up to like a year ago of a voice getting on the radio talking about windows being blown out at, uh, 12th and 13th street. Well, that was, that was me on hazmat. Right. You know, I finally picked it out and going, okay, that's me. Cause I remember telling them we're at 12th street and there's windows blown out of buildings. No you know, kidding. And uh, so by the time we got down to where we needed to be, they'd establish it was the Murrah building. So we turned on Fifth Street and spotted the rig right there at uh, Fifth and Broadway, which is, like you said, it's just a maybe a block and a half from here, two blocks from here. Right. And proceeded to head to the building. And before we got to the building, uh, Captain Cruz, Major Cruz on uh, Engine 5 had set up a triage at the – there was a YMCA – uh, caddy corner from the Murrah building. There was no YMCA building, had a daycare in it. Uh, I don't think a lot of people knew the federal building had a daycare in it at the time. <clears> so, <throat> but, uh, so a lot of the injuries there were just like, you know, flying glass and debris, kids with cuts and scrapes. And so we set up a triage there and was kind of just checking people out. Was, was that on the, on the south side of the building? Yes. It would have been on the southeast Southeast corner. Yeah, right there. Yeah, right across from that church right there. Yeah, yeah that yep. used to be a YMCA. Okay. And uh, had a daycare in it. And uh, matter of fact, your new YMCA that's just right around the corner here mm-hmm. takes up a whole two right. That used to be oh, right there. Okay. And uh, the new YMCA used to be the old Pubco, old Daly, Oklahoma building years ago. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. So uh, we have a history lesson. Uh, but it's uh, – so we set up a triage there for, I don't know, maybe – we probably wasn't, we weren't there very long, five minutes maybe. And I don't remember who originally set up instant command, but they called for hazmat five to come down to the building to assist the police department, getting a lady out of the basement. So that was our first, uh, that was the first time we actually saw the building. Yeah. Cause you're on the South side. Right. And you really can't tell the damage. You see well, the smoke. Right. And plus there's that little fifth street's got a little hill to it. Uh, yeah. from Broadway, sorry, from Broadway. So until you actually get to the intersection of Fifth and Broadway, mm-hmm. you really can't see the bottom of the building and see everything. Let Lennon pull up one of the one of the pictures that I got there. Okay. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So uh, we're, we're looking to to the left of this screen is the north. Uh yes. And to the right is the south and you, we were no, we were right over here. In that parking lot right over there, yeah, right on the uh, kind of the we'll east, the southeast? Green, the green grass over okay, here. Okay, yep. That's where the YMCA was. Oh, okay. So we were over there. Uh, that parking lot across the street is where, I know we'll get to it. That's eventually, that's where I took Bailey to the ambulance. Okay. So, but uh, that's our ladder. That's ladder five uh, right there. And the, uh, one, the one on the top? Yeah, the one with the ladder extended mm-hmm. all the way up. Okay. And uh, there's actually a famous 
pretty famous video of a fireman walking a gentleman down the ladder. Seen it, yeah. And that was uh, Mark Molman. He was walking down Dr. Espy of Vietnam, uh, Vietnam, a veterinarian yeah. who worked for the state that was office there. Okay. But uh, so, yeah, we were over there, and then they called us to – it's weird because the first floor was actually on the back side, on the south side, because there's that plaza. Mm-hmm. So that was the Where main – the fountains that, are now. That yep. was the actual main entrance. Okay. And so there was a basement, and – you got the build top of the building and then the little lower portion. Sure. Right there. Yep. Uh, right around that corner, there were stairs from the outside that went down to the basement. And that's where we went down and helped the uh, police. Right away. Yeah, right away. Get a lady. Um, she was tangled up in like suspension wire from the ceiling, you know, the suspended ceiling. And the sprinkler system had busted. She was laying in some cold water. And uh, she was alive. So we just helped her get untangled, help them get her untangled and get her out. Right. And there is actually a... A photo, uh, you can see a lady on a backboard and there's a, a cop. I think he was a redheaded, big old muscly guy, but you can tell his shirt's just soaking wet from the water and everything. It was one of the pictures that circulated around, but that was the first, uh, that was the first person that we encountered. So when you're, when you're in that grass mm-hmm. and you look, you're 30 years old, you look over at this, you're running 5 million calls in the last yeah. 10 years. You never seen anything like this. You turn around and you look at this. Yeah. What? What do you think? Anything? Or are you just in a? You're just doing doing the job. Do it. Just following orders well, at that know, point. And you are keeping adrenaline, your head straight. Adrenaline's you know taking over, and you know you're getting orders, so you got to follow your orders. Um, I distinctly remember, like as you got closer, even in the street up there where all the people are mm-hmm. there's so much it doesn't look like it in the photo but there's so much debris and stuff you're on walking the ground, on, on the ground yeah you're walking on broken glass you're walking on pieces of concrete you're walking on um and i remember once we left the ymca and headed to the murrow building the i don't think i don't think we stopped and stared but you felt like you did you felt like you stood there and just stared at it with your you know jaw dropped open and I tell people now, and, and looking back, and it's not to discount any fatality, but if you had to look at that building at 9 o'clock in the morning when everybody's at work, nine floors, pancake down on top of each other, if you'd have told me right then, hey, we're only gonna, there's only going to be 168 fatalities, man, I would have told you you were absolutely insane. Right, because how many? Do you know how many people were worked in the building oh, that day? Well, they, I think they say there was over seven or 800 injuries. Right. You know, and so I don't know how many people were at work that day, but nine-story office building, Yeah. Um, nine o'clock in the morning. So a lot of people, a lot, lot of miracles people. that day. Oh, a lot. That's what I tell people. It's it's, and and I don't say it to like say to take away from one single fatality, but to to come away from that destruction with only 168 fatalities is right. Still kind of staggering. You know, I never I never thought about that because I didn't know how big the building, mm-hmm. how many people were in it. But I remember 9-11 vividly. I mean, that's what got me into being a firefighter right. back, back when I when I started. And, and I remember that the projections were 30,000 people. Yeah. And, and again, I not to diminish the 3,000 that died, but, you know, we all thought that there was – you remember? Yeah, well, yeah. There, there was going to be 30,000, 40,000 people, you know. Yeah, they were just waiting. And, yeah. and, and the same thing with that. You know, we were – I think we were expecting, you know, three, four hundred – fatalities maybe more right and uh and because for a long time there were so many people unaccounted for 
because they either went to the hospital and family could, uh, cell phones. No, right. you know, they were, they were existent, but not, you know, I think I had a big, uh, I think I might have had a bag phone right, or a big white brick, <laughs> a brick. I think I had a brick. I can't remember, but, and, uh, not very many people had them. It was pagers and sure, you know, pull sure. over and use a quarter at the pay phone <laughs> to call in. But, uh, so for a long time, there was a lot of people unaccounted for, um, because relatives couldn't get hold of them. So mm-hmm. that's when we were thinking that, you know, the death count was going to be four or 500 or even, even more. So like I said, for 168, for, for the condition the building was in and how many people mm-hmm. worked in that building. So, so you guys pull the lady out who's, who's tangled. Mm-hmm. She, she ends up okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, uh, and how do you know, how do you even know what to do next? Uh, well, I think fortunately for us, because I think it would have been one of those deals. Okay. We got that done. I think I didn't even have time to tell the command that we had, uh, completed that assignment. I think mm-hmm. he came on the radio and said, when you complete that assignment, head to the South side of the building and report to, I don't remember who, whatever, who's going to be in charge of that sector division Mm-hmm. Whatever, you know, ICS was kind of, I think this was one and I don't, I can't confirm it, but I, I've been told that, yeah, there's Mark Molman and Dr. Espy. <clears throat> oh yeah. Yeah. A good friend of mine, Mark Molman. But, uh, he was, he had to be, Mark said we were just a few, he was just a few minutes away from just having to just literally drag him down. He was scared of heights. Oh God. Uh, I mean, if you've never been on a, yeah, on so a he, truck ladder before, yeah, I bet. So, so but, um, uh, I forgot what we was talking about. Oh. I've been told that was kind of one of the first major incidents where the ICS was actually incident command system was implemented. Right. I think it was actually IMS then maybe incident management system. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so, um, like I said, we were told to go to the South side of the building and that is when, uh, Sergeant Avery, a police officer <clears throat> appeared out of nowhere. I mean, I don't remember him coming around the corner, coming, out of a doorway or anything. I just remember him screaming for somebody because he had a critical infant. And I think there's actually a photo of him handing me. Uh, it's pretty grainy. I think there's actually a photo of him handing me Bailey. Right. And, right. Uh, yeah. That photo's in there, Lennon. Is it? Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and he works for Oklahoma City PD. Yeah, he was, a, he was an Oklahoma City police officer. And I don't even think I recognized he was a police officer at the time. I'm only looking back. But you look back and see the photo, he's got his gun on. I think he's got a right. police department hat on. I thought it was just a civilian. He said he had a critical infant, you know, and kind of almost like current day, police officers weren't trained in first aid or just not. I mean, and so he was just looking for somebody. And I just reached out and said, here, I'll, yeah, there it is. And I just said, here, I'll, I'll take her. And And so, uh, so what, so, so, uh, you know, for someone like me, you know, your gear looks pretty similar to something today. mm Mm-hmm. But the time that really dates this is his gun. Yeah. Um, and then I'm I'm trying. I wonder what he's. What do you think he's saying at that point? What I, what, what do you think he's? I think I think I, that may just be right where he said I've got a critical infant. Right. And and I, I think I said here I'll take her. And where <laughs> and where did he where where how did he come across? across he was actually, from my understanding, when they wherever they made entry, they started. They were just digging. Um, there's some pictures you'll see these five gallon buckets, I yellow see. buckets. Yep. I that's see where there's no heavy equipment. That's where firefighters were just, and police officers, anybody was just digging with their hands. And they had like a tunnel of people and they would dig 
and slide this debris and stuff back between their legs. And the guy that was behind them would do it. And that's how they tunneled their way in to mm-hmm. make access. Um, I don't know if I could have done that part. I wasn't part of that. Those guys are badass to me um, and girls that were doing it. <clears throat> but I think they once they started getting to they started getting to stuff new, they were by the daycare area because they started getting little toys and stuff. And I don't know who handed him Bailey, but and he'll tell you, he didn't he didn't dig Bailey out. Somebody handed him Bailey mm-hmm. part of that train. Right, right. And so he just came out saying, Man, I need some help. He said he said, I was like the third person that he said, I've got a critical infant. And I'm the only one, and not not those people were probably doing something. I wasn't right. That right. wasn't to discount them, but uh, I just said, "Here, I'll I'll take her." Uh, stood there on the sidewalk with her for a minute, where he handed her to me, and uh, my crew went ahead and went to the south side of the building, and uh, to report to the sector chief or whatever we were doing. And I remember I cleaned uh, concrete dust out of her throat, checked her for any signs of life. Couldn't find any. She had a open skull fracture. And <clears throat> I take this, and I always look at this. You can, In the other photo, the like the Newsweek, well, I'm sure we'll show where it's mm-hmm. me and Bailey. It's so, the media does their job. It's so bright red. I've noticed that. Yeah, my helmet. I mean, my helmet's pretty red, but hers was more where the blood was. It was gray think, because of the concrete. I can't dust. believe you just <laughs> said that because... It, We'll talk about the different. There's two different pictures mm-hmm. and the arguments oh, between the two. Oh yeah, we'll talk. And about I that. kept trying to compare them, and I noticed like, well, this one, it it, it sure is. That is the reddest blood yeah. I've ever seen, and that doesn't look. It almost right. doesn't look real. Right. And we'll talk about it. it. Actually, took a photo. They had to get an expert in, and it was uh, the way they determined which photo belonged to who was like where a shadow. That's how I determined it. Yeah, where I'm looking at Bailey. over your left shoulder. Yeah, there's, there's a, a shadow there's or something. That's how they determined. And I know we'll get into that. So, but uh, anyway, she had, uh, I had to clear out uh, concrete dust out of her throat. Okay. She had an open skull fracture. Uh, I can tell in the photo that little leg, I think that little leg's broke. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, I didn't have any signs of life. And so I took her, I looked up and saw that parking lot we talked about earlier, saw an IMSA unit over there. Mm-hmm. Which is the, lo- the local ambulance at the time, still right. today. Yeah, still we today. Could, we call them IMSA. Yeah. Hmm? And I couldn't always remember if it was Amcare, because it was Amcare before. Right, right. So I always couldn't remember if it was Amcare or IMSA, but I've seen a couple of photos where I see the actual IMSA unit. But uh, I walked across the street, and the same thing Sergeant Avery said. I looked at that paramedic and said, I've got a critical infant. And <clears throat> the actual photo is actually bigger. Yeah. You can see that you can see the paramedic looking up at me. And, and, uh, and I think there's another cop. In that photo, there might be, and and there and there's a cop car, but, maybe. W- but what happened was the uh, the ambulance was they had somebody on the cot, they had somebody on the floor, and somebody up on the bench seat, right? <coughs> right. That's it, yeah. A, that's a, both of those. And I, man, he worked for quite a few more years. I wish I could remember the, who the that par- was. The paramedic. Yeah, the one. Mm-hmm. Well, both of them. I can't remember if he was a paramedic off duty that came in or a doctor that showed up. Oh, I think I assumed that that was a cop, but you're right. That probably is. Yeah, I can't remember. But anyway, I told him I had a critical infant. And the reason I'm standing there waiting, the reason I'm standing there waiting and just looking at her is they said, this guy here on the ground said, Uh let me get a blanket because we're not going to put that baby on the ground. Because there was nowhere. There was two or three people laying around the ambulance on backboards. 
And then, like I said, the ambulance was full. Somebody was in the floor, somebody was on the bench seat, somebody was on a cot, uh, patients already. And so he says that, and I'm just standing there kind of waiting, and I'm looking at her. And I, I, I know all this once I see the photo, and we'll get into that. I don't know about the photo until midnight. I don't see it till the next day. Sure, sure. And, but seeing the photo and knowing what was going on, I just remember my thoughts looking at her was, <clears throat> I thought, somebody's world, and this is maybe only an hour into the incident, I thought, man, somebody's world is getting ready to be turned upside down today, you know, just, and I knew she was close to my son's age, who was a year and a couple of months. Bailey had just turned a year old the day before on mm -hmm. April 18th. That's right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and then me thinking that somebody's and not knowing that that thought, that image right there, that scene was going to be portrayed 167 more times around the building that day. Mm -hmm. uh, first responders, whether it be fire, police, EMS, whatever, thinking, wow, you know, somebody's world is going to be turned upside down today. And so this this is also the first fatality that you've seen that day? Yes. Yeah. First uh, first fatality. Uh, everybody else was, like I say, walking wounded. And um, and, and you're, you're in EMT school. Yeah. And so, you know, aside from you know, you know, you know, and again, there, there, there's folks that watch this in Australia where, where, where the, the, the systems are completely different around the world. And I get so many questions like, well, why do you guys have EMTs and paramedics and fire truck? Um, but you know, you're, you're, you're both in a lot of places in right. the United States, even, even back in the late eighties, early nineties started to have firefighters right. who were both EMTs and paramedics. So right. you, you're in EMT school. So you're, you got to be thinking student stuff, right? Well, I A B C. Well, that's what I just uh, said. I checked. Uh, I checked yeah. for signs of life. A B C's. Right. That's exactly what I checked because that's you know I was just like a you know and when we talk about earlier I talked about there's 37 fire stations now in Oklahoma City and they're mm -hmm. all ALS engines now. So right. They've all got paramedics on. That's how much things have changed. Um, but yeah, that's what I did. I checked her airway, breathing, circulation, you know. Right. Just, and, and none of it's coming back and good. And none of it's coming back good. Um, and so standing there just, you know, thinking that thought, and then they, they got a blanket, uh, put her on the blanket, or handed him to her, and he put her on the blanket. And I turned around and went and caught up with my crew, who had already made entry. Get, an the, get another assignment. Yeah. I went and caught up with them. They had already made entry into the building. Mm -hmm. And... uh that's that's another amazing story. We were actually, I when I got down with them, they were had already made contact with a person. They could hear her, and she was telling them, "I can feel y'all walking on me." She could feel the pressure in in the building. Yeah, inside the building. Uh, we'd gone to South Side down into what they call the pit area, and uh, so when I got down there, they were already like communicating with her. They were trying to figure out how she was laying. Like, where do you feel the pressure now? So they'd find out which way she was laying so they knew where her head was at. No kidding. That's where they'd start moving debris and know to be more careful because they're around her face and her head. And um, so when I got down there, that's what they were doing. They were, and they started, they found out how she was laying. They started removing debris. Soon as we could actually communicate with her clearly, uh, I did what I did on most first aid calls as an officer. I started getting information. Uh, so I, I just knew her name was Sheila Driver. She was 28 years old. Wow. She was pregnant. I'll never forget her. Oh. Uh, so we're visiting with her. Um, got her up on the uh, 
they had to come up with a pulley system to put her on the backboard and then use the pulley system to get her up to the street level. Uh, put her on an ambulance and she went to the hospital. And that was the last, that was probably a, maybe an hour or two uh, into the incident. It was right before they evacuated us the first time. Mm, all and because of the bomb scare. Bomb scare. Yeah. Because somebody uh, just screamed out. Well, what had happened, saw I, my understanding is somebody up on the uh, ninth floor where the ATF was, there was a, a dummy device that they had, on, training. They had on display. Right. And uh, somebody recognized it as an explosive device, set it over the radio, so they evacuated us. Oh, no. Which was probably, you know, I think that was before. It was actually a good thing because it, it kind of, everybody got to step back and take a breath. A little reset. And reset and kind of got a game plan together. Fire department was command. You know, then police and IMSA start, you know, filtered in where they filtered in. And, uh, but Sheila uh, was the last, we were there till, we got sent back to the station at 1130 that night. She was the last live person we had contact with that day. Mm. Everything else was, uh, uh, we worked with live scent dogs and cadaver dogs. Um, and we never saw another, we never extricated another live person that day. So did you stay down there till? 0700 the next day. No, they, they sent us back to the station at 11 o'clock that night mm -hmm. and started bringing guys in from. Just the, for relief. Yeah, that were, I mean, uh, stationed farther out, you know, uh, mm -hmm. brought them in. We went back and as soon as we got back to the station, we were making first aid calls, house fires, uh, you name it. So it was just a, it was a full 24 hour shift. Right. But the first 12 hours of it was spent down there. And then seven o'clock rolls around. You, you go home. Uh, yeah. Um, if we want to talk about it real quick, that's when I found – we got back to the station, and I got a call from our dispatch office. Oh, that, oh that night. That's when I found out about the photo, that a photo mm -hmm. had even been taken. Uh, the uh, chief of our dispatch – yeah, we had a chief over dispatch back then. <laughs> how, do sign, a, how do I sign up for that? Yeah. Um, Harvey Weathers, great guy. Uh, he called, and he said, hey, Chris, did you carry a baby out of the building? I said, no, I didn't. I said, a gentleman, because, again, I didn't recognize him as a police officer. I said, a gentleman – handed me a baby mm -hmm. and he said well i got this photo faxed to us it's kind of grainy faxed yeah, what's fa that yeah yeah faxed to him mm -hmm. and uh so it was kind of grainy and he said the ap associated press wants to identify the firefighter and chief mars who's our fire chief at the time said yeah that's like public record you, you know who it is identify him um and like I say, it was a grainy photo he was looking at. And he said, I think it's you. And I said, well, let me ask uh, Curtis Mayfield and John Cruz. They were the other two captains. They would have had red helmets on. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I asked them and they said no. So I just told Harvey. I said, Harvey, I guess it's me. I said, why? What's going on? He said, well, there's a photo here of you holding the baby. He said, the Associated Press wants to identify the firefighter. And they said it's going worldwide. So I hung up the phone and guys and girls at the station uh, said, what was that about? And kind of jokingly said, well, apparently I'm going worldwide. Kind of jokingly whatever said. Whatever that means. Yeah, whatever that means. Not having any idea <laughs> what it meant. Viral before viral. Viral before viral, yeah, anything. before social media, yeah. And uh, got up the next morning. Uh, we made a couple of rides during the night. Uh, got up the next morning, and the other shift had come in. And I think one guy brought the – of course, the day of Oklahoma, and it was the it was on the cover or the front page in a little inset picture, mm -hmm. and then like the USA Today and the Dallas Morning News ran it. So we put the TVs on to watch the 
morning shows to see the coverage at the station. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it was uh, they were showing all the headlines from around the world, and every newspaper or magazine from around the world in every language had this photo on it. This photo right here. This photo right here, me and Bailey, and and people ask me, "What did you think when you saw it?" And I'll I'll be honest with you, my first thought was, "I wonder if." Her family even knows. Yeah. I wonder if her family even knows. Um, and can, did they? I can tell you this. I'm good friends with Bailey's mom, Aaron, today. Uh, matter of fact, it's funny. Pulling down here, I saw her walk. She still lives in Regency Tower. Mm-hmm. And I just saw her walking down the sidewalk. I didn't have time to just stop now. and visit. Yeah, I just saw her on the way Outside here. the building. Yeah. Get out she of here. She was walking down the sidewalk. Uh, oh, you'll have a cool story to yeah. tell her uh, later so, on. Um, but- she knew Bailey was deceased, but she didn't know there was a photo. Right. And she'll tell the story. She stayed with her grandparents that night because there was damage to Regency Tower where she lived. Mm-hmm. And her parents, her grandparents, then got up the next morning, saw the newspaper, and knew it was Bailey. And they tried to hide the paper from her, which she caught, she'll tell you, this is her story. She thought it was odd because she got up, she wanted to see the paper and read about it, see the headlines. And her grandparents, like she said, that's all they did. They got up in the morning, had their coffee, and read the newspaper. Right. Uh, she well, that's what everybody did, and right? She, so she told them, or they told her that there was no newspaper, or something. So she knew something was up. Right. And then uh, she they ended up giving her a newspaper. She looked at it and knew it was Bailey right off the bat. And I think the local media at the time was trying to identify her. So Aaron got hold of somebody or they called Aaron and she said, yes, that's my, that's my daughter. Mm-hmm. And, and then, but it was already published. Uh, I don't think her name wasn't of course, but the photo, yeah, the photo, yeah, the photo had already gone worldwide. And, uh, she knew Bailey was deceased. She identified her earlier that day, uh, of the 19th, mm-hmm. but she didn't know about the photo until the, uh, till the next morning. And then, uh, so it had been a Thursday and Thursday afternoons when I met her for the first time. Right. Yeah, a local reporter here, Cynthia Gunn, used to be with Channel 9 or CBS, whatever you want to call it. She called me, got hold of me and at home and said, uh, this is Cynthia Gunn, introduce yourself. She said, Aaron Allman is the mother of the baby you were holding, Bailey. And I said, okay. And she said, well, she would like to meet you in Sergeant Avery. And I was like, nah, I'm out. I didn't, I really, because I thought, oh, actually, what she said was, do you want to meet her, the mother? And I said, no, because I didn't know. I mean, I didn't, their baby wasn't alive. I didn't save her, you know, save her. It was, uh, I thought, what's she going to say or do to me? And she said, yeah. well, she said, uh, that was her first question. Do you want to meet her? And I said, no. And she said, well, she wants to meet you. And I said, well, then let's, then let's do it. You know, right, right. Um, drove out to her grandparents' house that afternoon or that early evening. Two, just uh, two days later. Uh, the next day. The next day. The next day. I'm going back on duty Friday morning. So this is just on my first day off, which when I got home that first morning, uh, there was already national media all over my street. They'd already found out where I lived. They were knocking on neighbors' doors because my wife told my wife not to answer the door. Mm-hmm. She's because they're just pounding on the door. You had to sneak, local people, sneak in the house. Local people, people, media were great. It was the national who... They're not affected like local media is, you know. So, right. But I had to call um, our former PIO, John Hansen, Chief John Hansen, one of my yeah. great friends. May he rest in peace. Uh, he 
he was man a lifesaver. He was uh, he had so many connections with the police department. They they had to come over and run run the reporters off. And so anyway, I went and met Aaron. <clears throat> and the first thing she said to me and Sergeant Avery was, thank you. You know, we were like, thank you. So she was thanking us for getting her baby out. At least she, she said, I feel guilty that I know the fate of my loved ones. So many other people don't. So I think in that first 24 hours, they'd only identified yeah. maybe 18 or 19 people, I think. And, uh, and she said that she could tell that, you know, I was a father by the way I was holding her. And so she appreciated that. And so it was just, uh, it, me and Sergeant Avery always talk about, you know, we're these supposed to be these big hero type and we're just breaking down, losing control of every emotion. And here's this 20 year old single mom who just lost her only child comforting us. You know, that's how strong. It's wild. That's how wild. Strong, yeah. It is. It's just crazy. And, uh, so me and Aaron just kind of, I kind of struck, I'm 10 years older than her, kind of struck up that big brother little sister relationship. I felt like I need to be there for her once I got to know her. So, uh, she would, I wouldn't do some interviews. I wouldn't do unless she was doing them or she would call me and say, Hey, I'm going to do this interview. Would you do it with me? So I would say, yeah, I'll be there with you or I'll do the interview with you or something. So that kind of took on a whole, <laughs> and whole and, lot and is your, your phone, your house phones ringing too. Oh yeah. And then constantly they, uh, and yeah. And, uh, they actually, uh, Chief Mars, uh, or somebody, no, uh, AT&T, or it may have been Singular at the time. I don't know. Singular, what, I remember that, yeah. I don't know what it was. They actually got hold of me and gave me a cell phone just to use. Right, just off, during, that, I mean, that they didn't yeah, have not, the number to. Yeah, not forever, but they just gave right. me, that said, here, because we know you're getting this, and so they gave me this cell phone to use. And uh, You, you that, get that other one with the whole bunch of newspapers? That way, pull, I didn't have pull them both up. That way, I didn't have to give out my personal number to people. Right. So they gave me this self, supplied me with a cell phone, and uh, like I say, then the the interviews and all that just kind of took on a whole new meaning and uh, a holding life of its own. Yeah. yeah. So this is just an example, and you've probably seen them all, or maybe uh, most of them. I've, people have. <laughs> seen, I've got two or three boxes up my attic of people, yeah. think, all the newspapers people sent me, or cards and letters that were just like they would go to the fire station like to headquarters administration they were just to be addressed to the firefighter in the photo to the firefighter in or, the photo. yeah wow. and that and they were just they were they were thank and, you letters they were thinking of you letters yeah. they were you know just uh, i got a got a memo from like the royal british navy no kidding yeah a little post-it note like thing that said hey it's nuts for, you know represent and I think that some of the stuff I got was good stuff because it was telling me I was representing the fire service and the city of Oklahoma City really well. And that was kind of the thing. One of the things I struggled with was being singled out, you know, was. Right. And, and John Hansen, again, one of the guys that really, he said, I'll tell you what, he said, that photo is not about Chris Fields. It's not about Bailey Almond. He said, you're representing every first responder that was there that day. Yeah. Fire, police, IMSA, it doesn't matter. So he said, and Bailey's representing all the innocence that was lost, whether fatalities or injuries. So when I put it in that perspective, it was a little easier to do some interviews and speak. And I got great support from the guys and girls on the fire department. Right. It really did. So so I, I pulled this, this this one up. I mean, obviously, there, there were hundreds of them. I thought this one was interesting because it was from San Diego. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it looks like a lot of them. But up in the top right, 
it just it really cued me in. It's got a picture of Oklahoma, and then it says suspects that counterterrorism experts point to Islamic fundamentalists. Yeah, that was the thought. And this is this is the day after. This is a- April twentieth, um, and I just find it so interesting that the time. Looking back uh, in our in our country, this is arguably the most peaceful time in our mm-hmm. nation's history, right? I mean, we did have Desert Storm, but we kind of right. we kind of took care of that really quick, right? Right. So we've got like a twenty some year history at this point, twenty year run of of peace, of really. Mm-hmm. You and, had that, and and yeah. you just think that nobody right. the Americans couldn't imagine it being anything else, right? Well, and they tied it to. At first, they tied it to remember nineteen ninety three World Trade Center. World Trade Center mm-hmm. that was you know I think it was in Long Terrace. The, the failed attempt, yeah, right, where they did the parking garage thing, right, and, right. Uh, so I think everybody just tied it to that, and uh, you know that's we had uh, any American flag we found it was flying from the building, and which I think mm-hmm. would have been the case no matter what, uh, but it was really a lot of uh, yeah, there was a lot of anger and a lot of uh, sure. I think there was. Uh, Middle Eastern people getting harassed and you know oh, I bet. And all that kind of stuff. So, so, so now it's now it's four twenty. Was that 30, April, thirty-one dead just the next day? Yeah, so, yeah. I saw some other ones like that where it just starts creeping up and creeping yeah. up and creeping up. So it's the next day though. It's April twentieth. Mm-hmm. Now, now who's Chris Fields? What is it? What is this? What does this do to you? Oh man! How, how does this set off the next twenty years of your yeah, of your life? It's um. Yeah, man, it was just a, it was just a crazy, crazy time. It changed. Uh, I don't think it ever really changed who I was as a person. It changed how I was identified, you know. And uh, I've tried always. I tried to say, you know, I'm I'm now that I'm over some struggles, you know, that I'm more than just what that photo was. I mean, I buried three, you know, buried four or five brothers, you know, that died in the line of duty, you know, three of them, two of them since that, you know, day. So there's so many other, so many other things. But that next day was just a, uh, it was just, I'd say, putting in the spotlight like that. It was, uh, you know, just a. And you're not a spotlight kind of guy. No, I'm just a boy from Oklahoma, you know, that. Mm -hmm. uh, So it was just, uh, it was something I was nothing nothing could prepare me for it uh uh i guess fortunately for me uh i always had kind of the gift of gab so uh i was kind of like john hansen i could uh had the gift of gab and so anything that you know stick a microphone in front of me and i was able to answer questions and uh so that kind of took on a life of its own that's what i did for the next um and i and i've never talked to chief mars about it but i know a lot of um unintentionally he would call me and say, hey, uh, so-and-so wants to do an interview. Um, if you don't want to do it, tell me, and I'll be the bad guy and tell him no. Well, in mm-hmm. my mind, I'm going, I don't want to be a bad guy. I don't want to get the reputation of, oh, he's too good to do. So I was just doing all these. Just nonstop. Interviews after interviews after interviews. You get, and are you getting pointers from your uh, PIO? Just, you know. That after, doesn't seem like something that would be normal for, you, you know, it, whatever your rank was, I mean, you're a blue shirt, you know, right. you're, you're, you're normally not somebody who's like, go tell the media what's going on. Right. The only thing I remember chief Hanson, John Hanson, PIO, one of the main things he told me was to avoid, he said, you know, there's a lot of uh, political stuff going on with it. There's a lot of, he said, 
just avoid that. Don't, don't answer that question. Don't. Yeah. Uh, so I did these, like you see that white shirt on the corner there. That's John Hansen sitting next to oh, me. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, we did some live stuff. And so you remember this one? Yeah, I remember because I had to be down there like at 4.30 in the morning before I went on duty, you know, because that's when they film all this stuff. It's at 5, 5, because it's 6 and 7 on the East on, Coast, on, on New the York East City. Coast. So, uh, yeah, doing start this one. Start this one over, buddy. We're not going to play the whole thing. Oh, is it an interview? Yeah, I just want to see what Chris Chris looks like, what baby Chris looks like. They'll haunt so many of us. She was killed in the blast one day. After so this is CNN. Yeah. Chris, how has it changed your oh, life? You always hear on other incidents, people, you know, say that it makes you think about the, the smaller things in life that you take for granted. And if you're, you're, you're distance yourself from that, you think, you know, that's old cliche. That's what everybody says. But then when something like this. And, and where, is home. this outside station five or where's uh, this? No, it's downtown. Okay. A little area they called Satellite City. And and thank the Lord for the small And PIO standing right next to you. Yeah, he's sitting there because he's part of the interview too. I think yeah. that's what's happened to the, to the city and the nation as a whole. Oh, you look good, man. Uh, just speaking from guys I know. I look like a baby. I've seen, <laughs> I've seen this year. And but I'd it, never done for this. I'd never done an interview. Never Yeah. So you so you're the the day after you're waking up and doing these interviews. When when do you get to sit down and Go, holy shit. Oh. What just, what just happened? Yeah. When it, do you get to do that? Man, it was probably. Or have you even gotten to do that yet? Uh, yeah, it was, um, it was a while. Um, I tell you what, though, when we first got back to the station, I think everybody kind of took a, you know, of course you're only 12 hours into it, but, uh, I think it was really, uh, man, probably a week or so, a couple of weeks before I actually, you know, I think when I hit my when I hit my first four days off, the way we worked our shifts back then, mm-hmm. we were actually on duty Wednesday, Friday, and Sunday. So my four days off fell on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I think I remember everything was kind of just getting lined up. So I did a couple of interviews, but I think that was the first time I got to finally just kind of. Mm-hmm. I didn't go down to the building. I didn't uh, uh, do anything. I think them four days. That was kind of when I really first just kind of took a deep breath and kind of still trying to process what all was going on. Yeah. But it was just, like I said, it was, it was uh interview after interview. It was uh some of the shows I went with a group. I never went but like just me, but like, uh, you know, the Mark Molman, the guy I showed in the video, helping right. Dr. Espy down, he was invited out. We all went to like flew to New York city for the today show. And did you? Yeah. And all that kind of stuff. Who and, was, who was hosting at that time? I do not even remember. I yeah. want to, uh, uh, Bryant Gumble, maybe. Yeah. Brian Gumble. I, I think so. Yeah. And then, uh, we did like CBS this morning with Harry Smith and, um, Paula Zahn. Right. And, uh, it was kind of crazy though. We went to New York city for that, um, uh, did their show. They took us out to dinner the night before the night of and, once they told people who we were, that we were from Oklahoma City, and well, you know, it's probably within a month. Mm-hmm. And uh, man, it was crazy. The place just went bonkers. The restaurant, standing ovation, yeah. and all, and everybody. Of course, CBS was going to pay for the meal, you know, of course, but then they couldn't because all these other people were paying for the. Right. It was just so. Uh, but, so what a strange dynamic. You're 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 getting paid seven dollars or not seven dollars an hour anymore but maybe yeah. you're getting paid you you're, you're not making much money because no. you back in the, uh, back probably, in those days probably 
but you, 35,000 a year, but 40. you enjoy your career mm-hmm. and this is what you want to do. Yep. And this happens. And now little old country boy from <laughs> Dell city is getting flown around the country, but because of a tragedy. Right. How, how do you reconcile that in your brain? You, you, you I, know, you, you can't, you, you, you can't, like how do how do you do that? Well, and like I say, that was a lot of the struggle because you know, uh, everybody busted their ass down there and did you know what I did was no different than what everybody else did. Mine just happened to be caught on camera, and that was a lot of the struggles. And that's when John Hansen used to tell me, he said, "It's not about you, and you're representing the fire service. You're representing the city of Oklahoma City, the state of Oklahoma, firefighters across the nation. Mm-hmm. You know, so." So it's, it made it a little easier to say that, you know, at least I got to represent the fire service. Um, fortunately, the, you know, all the interviews were about that day and about Bailey and, you know, nothing was ever about Chris Fields. I mean, it was about the photo. Right. Right. But, uh, so it was, uh, it was, it was, it was totally different because you're, and I still kind of tell my wife and I, go, it was crazy back then. I mean, like I said, we met all these people, you know, that I used to sit in my TV and, you know, I, I did an interview with Barbara Walters. You right, know, right. I was I was on the View back when it was watchable. Part sorry, I shouldn't have said that. Uh, <laughs> when it was brand new, you know. Wait, I got you. So just all this stuff. I told my wife. I said, "You think about back then? It was just crazy." Some of the Tom Brokaw sat at the fire station five eating a hamburger on the back of the rig with us playing basketball. I mean, I mean that's, that's just, wild. It's just, and all because of th- this picture. Yeah, it was all because of that picture. Because if the picture didn't happen. Then, then none of these, none of this would have happened. None and of so this. when, when, when we look at, when we look at the picture, I can't remember where, where I've got, um, some, some of the names here, but this is, but there was a contra, there's controversies over the picture. Mm-hmm. Right. And so th- there, there's multiple ones. So the one that we're looking at right here, and it took me a while to figure it out because it's not easy to find, but you've got, um, you've got a white, building over your left shoulder Mm -hmm. and i've come to learn that that means that a guy mr porter took this photo mr porter's just some dude he was a bank teller he thought they were demolishing a building so he grabbed his camera and ran outside and just started 35 millimeter started snapping photos took his little roll of film to the photo mat which everybody knows what a photo mat is yeah your son probably doesn't know what a photo no he doesn't he does. Yeah. He's shaking. That's where you take your photo to this little roadside booth and drop it off, and they develop your film for you. Right. And you go back and pick your pictures up. And I think the guy from uh, from that photo, Matt, called him and said, "Hey, you've got some pictures here. You need to you need to give these to the Associated Press or call them." Right. And so and, that guy, the photo guy, yeah, hooks the Porter guy up. Hooks the Porter with guy AP, up. Wins the Pulitzer Prize. This photo is all around the world within less than 24 oh, hours. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um, he gets the copyright. He gets a Pulitzer Prize, which has some type of monetary value to $1 it. One million dollars. One million dollars um, that that year. Uh, but there's another photo. Mm-hmm. Pull, pull, pull up the Newsweek one, Lennon. And I, I certainly never knew this. And so this photo that's on the left here. I would argue that probably most people think it's the same photo, mm-hmm. but there's a shadow over your left shoulder 
Then in the other photo, it's it's white. And so it looks like this photo is taken maybe three foot. This guy must be standing three foot to the right of Mr. Porter. This guy's name is Mr. LaRue. Bob LaRue. Bob LaRue. He was a employee of ONG, Oklahoma Natural Gas. He was one of their safety. I don't know if he was the main safety guy, one of their safety guys. So when this first happens and they think it's, you know, at the end, everybody thinks it's natural gas line, you know, explosion or something. Right. So he's down there. He's got a safety officer. He's taking pictures. Um, and I'll have to go into a little more detail real quick. This, this turned into a deal to where me and Aaron, Beatty's mom, we got a lawyer because we weren't seeking any monetary. She wanted to have some kind of control because – uh, it's her kid. Within the next day, I mean, they're selling T-shirts with that photo on it. I've got stuff up in my attic where people sent me uh, like a pewter uh, a belt buckle with that image. With this photo. Yeah, it's not the photo, but it's the image. Right. In a belt buckle, a keychain, a pewter keychain mm-hmm. on coffee mugs, you name it. They were just doing all this stuff. Um, Bob LaRue, I think, was down at, uh, they were selling little statues of it. I think July 4th, they had a big independence deal down in Bricktown. Mm-hmm. Of course, Bricktown wasn't like it is now, but they, uh, I think Aaron came across them and, uh, I don't know, just really got out of control. So th- thinking I need to take care of Aaron and help me taking responsibility, saying, which I had no control over, but in my mind thinking, now this happens if it's not for the photo. Right. So I feel like I got to do something. So, we get an attorney. We're going to try to stop at least where Aaron can have a say-so of what the photo is used for. Uh, that went south. Uh, <laughs> we were told uh, we're not celebrities, so we don't have a say-so. Our attorney argued, well, because of the photo, they were put in celebrity status, so they should have some say-so. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the judge, when they ruled against us and said, no, you don't, they actually looked at Aaron and said that – if I wanted to pursue it, they could see where I might have a case, but she didn't have a case because her concerned party was deceased. Holy shit. So, I mean, that's what the judge. Wait, how long after the bombing is this taking uh, place? Within a year? Oh, yeah. It's within a year. Oh, my God. And so. Um, it's terrible. Yeah. So that was kind of, you know, and even like on the, you know, probably no ill will, maybe a little, but like on Chuck Porter's deal, you know, he got a million dollars. I didn't, I had a job. I didn't need anything right I, I, I remember when he got that i was thinking good man he's gonna at least maybe he'll call aaron and say man i apologize that you know the photo did what and i don't blame him i mean this was an opportunity he was a photographer an amateur photographer the ap i mean anybody would have done it sure you know um of course they don't think about the impact it's gonna have on the people in the photo that's just life um but i thought surely he'll contact aaron and Offer something or, hey, let's start a scholarship fund in Bailey's name. Something. Well. Nothing. Nothing. and uh, Ever. Ever. Um, I've, and, he- I've heard rumors that he thought he did us a favor. I don't know if he ever came out and said it like that, but, you know, that we put he put us in the public spotlight. Maybe we should be thankful for it. I can't confirm that he ever said that. but Yeah. Uh, so uh, is, and, and so the – the, the interesting thing that I saw was, you know, the LaRue guy, he's working for ONG. Yeah. He, he sends the photo to Newsweek, and this is really the only 
published version of it that I know of that that's here on Newsweek. And Time Magazine published the one here that's next to McVeigh's face, mm-hmm. which is the Porter version. Right. Almost look identical. Right. And that they filed a lawsuit immediately thinking that Newsweek stole their photo mm-hmm. and that whoever LaRue was was an alter ego, yeah. was not a real person. Yeah. And there's a lawsuit and they had to have forensic experts Differentiate to tell you what to tell you what yeah. I just told you that the shadows are different. Well, and and Mr. Larue, the only thing that really came out of positive, I guess, was Aaron, ONG Don Sherry, I think was the PIO for ONG back then. Great guy, uh, was PIO for several things, I think, around the Oklahoma area. But I don't know if he reached out. Anyway, how they got hold of Aaron, they went to Mr. Larue and said, "We want the photo." And he said, no, it's mine. And they said, no, you were on ONG time driving ONG's truck using ONG's camera that had film that ONG purchased in it. Mm-hmm. He fought them. He, so it basically came down to uh, he took them to court or they went to court. They sued each other for right. however that works. My understanding, ONG won because of that. Mm-hmm. You know, he quit. He got fired. He forfeited. A 30-something yeah. year retirement with Oklahoma Natural Gas. Yeah, I, th- I think that he left voluntarily to pursue that. Right. That, Thought he that was going to win, and he didn't win. Two years he worked there. Yeah, and gave up that retirement. And then lost. And, and then lost. ONG, and I don't know where it stands now, but I know they established, they put this photo in a vault. Mm-hmm. They established a a board, and supposedly me and Aaron are on that board. Are the photos ever going to be used for anything or a fundraiser and, and, or whatever. I did, and I did see that any proceeds that the photo had already made, ONG did funnel back somehow. Right, to the to some kind of memorial or something. Right. You know, and that's like Aaron, it, it, and she's real good about it. The photo, like, you know, I travel around, speak, and show the photo, but I do it with her blessing. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, I always show, show that picture. I think you showed a Bailey at her birthday. Another deal I do for Aaron. But like Aaron says, you know, that gives her some peace. Bailey didn't die in vain, you know, at least her, the photos being used as I travel and speak to other first responders about mental right. health issues, which we'll talk about. So, like, I think there's things that Aaron said, I don't mind it being used for as long as it, you know, but like I said, when it's just out there and people are making. It's got to be tough. Yeah. And then it's like, and a lot of this stuff, you know, I don't, I can't confirm, but I know I've been told because like when I was going to be like do an interview with, I think I did an interview with Oprah and, uh, but they asked me about the photo and I said, I got no control. I got no, well, they wanted to know if I had any other access because I think like for them to use it, Chuck Porter gets like five grand. I mean, I don't know that he gets right. some, he gets some kind of monetary deal every time it's used mm-hmm. unless it's being used in a certain sense of a news story. If right. It's just used to do something. I mean, I don't know all the ins and outs and I'm glad I don't, but it's a, uh, yeah, it was a, so I'm caught up in all the middle of that. Just, and, you months know, after yeah and uh the the, the in, after the bomb yeah you know we're brought in don't ask me why to be interviewed for the lawsuit between uh larue and ong How so bizarre. you got all this stuff going on uh so so this th- this aftermath um you you you, you know the, the craziness starts to die down mm-hmm. uh, over over some time but this had some effect on you 
for the rest of your life. Oh, no doubt. And and, and what so I tell what did, people what is, what did this do to your professional career? What did it do to your family? What did what did it do to you? Well, and what I tell people is, while all this is going on, I'm still going to the fire station, still making other calls, still making you know, grandma's still throwing making, up, grandma's still showing you know, up to her yeah, house, yeah, still making car wrecks with teenage fatalities, and I'm still making you know, doing all suicides and full arrest, and you know, all the stuff, still doing all that, and. Uh, it's weird that, uh, like I said, it was eating at me and it was bothering me. Um, and I recognized it. I started having these little mini bouts of like, for, which is unusual for me because I'm this pretty outgoing and like to be the center of attention kind of funny guy. I think I am. Uh, uh, my wife will tell you I'm not near as funny as I think I am, but uh, all, I think I, I think am. all wives say that. I think I am. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but I just, I would just didn't have that drive anymore to be that person. A little depression and isolate, just little mini bouts of it. But I, I was so good at hiding it, manipulating, and I'd get up and go to the station and be the same Chris Fields everybody expected. Cause I didn't want my chiefs and my people to think I couldn't handle my job. I didn't mm-hmm. want to think the people that worked for me that I couldn't handle my job, you know? So it's just kind of a back and forth. And this goes on for, Golly, uh, I don't know how many years. Uh, before things really get out of control, it's 2004, five. So it's, you know, six, seven years, eight years that I'm just kind of moseying along. Um, and then things kind of uh, get out of control in my life. I have a, um, we had an off-duty firefighter uh Throughout this time, I think I need a change in my career, so I take this chief's test. Mm-hmm. I become a district chief. Part of the deal, I'm over like I'm in support, so I'm over PIO, or I'm the assistant PIO. I'm over human resources. I'm over dispatch. I'm over all this stuff. And one of my first deals as PIO was I had to go out. Uh, Mike Titerman, uh, off-duty firefighter, was killed in a car wreck. Him and his 12-year-old son, meth heads, crossed the oh center line. So that's one of my first deals. I'm out. I get a call that an off-duty firefighter and, you know, we're great friends with him. We travel the country playing softball, fire department team. So all this stuff's going on. And a uh, uh, good friend of mine, Chris Deal, firefighter, you know, died in the line of duty. Uh, so it's just all this going on. And then one day, I think it was around 2005, when all this, we were putting a uh, pool in our backyard. And I was helping the guys that were going to do it. We were going to expand our patio so we were busting out the concrete. So it, it's kind of weird. I tell people that it, the bombing is responsible for part of it, but then it's the accumulative, the, I mean, the, not accumulative, accumulative trauma over mm-hmm. all the years, but it comes back to a trigger from the bombing. Uh, when I was busting out that concrete on the patio, it started to rain. Excuse me. And a lot of people don't know it rained the night of the Oklahoma City bombing. So I caught that well, uh, it's kind of this damp smell of wet concrete dust. Yeah. And I, I can pinpoint it to the day of, uh, matter of fact, if I was home, I could look on the patio because we always write, you know, how you write the date when you do new patio, new yeah. concrete. Uh, but I can pinpoint that as a day. I mean, I thought, man, that smells just like the bombing. And I didn't like freak out or struggle or flip out. But that's the day when these little mini bouts of depression and isolation and all that really started to manifest and be longer. Um, just, just things eating at me, little things that didn't used to bother me. Angry all the time, uh, pulling away from my family. My wife really started to notice it. Um, 
not I used to take off all the time to meet I mean pay guys to come in so I could right. make all my son's events. Uh started not really even making an effort to do that. Just wanted to eat dinner at the fire station, act like everything's okay, then go in my office about a station officer and shut the door, you know, right. and just kinda chill. And uh things started getting out of control at home, me and me and my wife arguing more and um heated arguments and it got to the point to where my, she told me, she said, you need to either talk to somebody and get some help. Cause she didn't know what to do. Um, and I'm not communicating. So she thinks she's the problem. You know, it's just all this. And she told me either get some help or get out. So I got out and we were separated for 17 months. And, uh, wow. yeah, that's a, that's, and that's part of the, the, I don't really struggle these days. Everything's great. But when I do have some days, I don't call them bad days. I say days aren't as good as others. Mm-hmm. That's really, I still struggle with forgiving myself. With 17 months, I had, you know, an extramarital affair that was public. I didn't care who I was hurting. Uh, How old were your were your boys? Um, let's see. They were 16 and 10 mm-hmm. by this time. Um, I'm a... I'm a mess. I've left. I leave home. I leave my 16 year old at home to be the man of the family. Uh, I tell people some of the things that I struggle with are I said things to their mother that no children should ever hear anybody say about their spouse. I mean, there was never any physical abuse, but the verbal and the emotional abuse was horrid. And I was responsible for it. Um, pushing away friends and family, the ones that were trying to help me, the only people I wanted to be around. Reminds a little group that was telling me everything was okay. Hey, man, but you're, hey, you're a grown man. Do what you want. You know, those were, I was getting my marital advice and my life advice from other firefighters sitting in a strip bar <laughs> during the day drinking right. beer that were in the same shit world I was in. Mm-hmm. You know, they wanted me in their world. That way they didn't feel as bad and I wanted to be in their world. And so we're all telling each other what we want to hear that we're doing the right thing. Meanwhile, I'm, alienating and embarrassing and pushing away anybody that's telling me anybody that's saying what I don't want to hear. I got no use for, I got no time for I'm living my life. And, uh, for 17 months, 17 months. Um, and I, I say that some of the things I struggle with still is I think you think 17 months isn't a bunch in a lifetime, but 17 months, I can never get back. Um, you know, uh, I got so bad that, uh, my sons, I, I helped, my older one, I was, I helped coach quite a bit. My younger one, he had other coaches in his little league stuff because I was coaching my older one by the time he was born. But anyway, uh, they would like ask Cheryl, Hey, try not to let Chris come tonight. And it, I wouldn't cause like a physical distraction or wouldn't think, but I would up just me being there would upset Cheryl, which that would upset Cheryl's your wife. Cheryl. Yeah. My wife, which would in turn upset the boys. Mm-hmm. So the even like coaches were like, be better off if you don't show up, if you don't come. Oh, man, it's rough. Yeah. And then my wife, who will tell you now, she, she'll she talk with me every now and then or speak with me every now and then and stuff. You know, she's uh, she's doing what she can to take care of the, the boys. And, you know, I've got an apartment on the other side of town. I'm uh, just so I can be the good guy. I'm still Chris Phil. I want to be the good guy. So I'm paying all the bills. So I'm running up this debt that's out of control, paying all the house stuff and paying the apartment stuff and and it's weird that I would go to the fire station and very few people even knew this was going on. That's how good I was at right. covering up everything. Uh, people I was tight with knew what was going on, 
But as far as the fire department as a whole, which is kind of like a beauty shop, really, the rumors, sure. you know, and the way, oh, yeah, the, way the gossip is and all that, uh, a lot of people didn't know because I was so good at putting on that, that mask of, you know, everything's great. 17 months. And in those 17 months, how many times did you think about killing yourself? Um, you know, the first six months, probably none. Cause I was like doing what I want to do. This is the life, you mm -hmm. know? Um, after that things started, uh, you know, when you have your spouse tell you that she's praying that God takes away her love for you. That's deep. That's, that's, I mean, you gotta be a pretty bad person for somebody actually praying not to love you. I mean, mm -hmm. that's, that's how bad a person I was. And, um, and it all came to a, came to a head one night and, uh, there were several times I thought about, uh, and I've learned so much about uh, people that try to complete suicide and the things I did, you know, because everybody thinks it's a selfish act and it's coward. No, it's not. It's one of the hardest because when you when you're thinking about doing it, you think you're actually doing your family or the spouse a favor. You think you're actually helping the family out, and it's a tough thing. And uh, I never really sat down and said, "All right, I'm on." get my pistol and I'm going to do this or that. But I was, uh, through a doctor friend that would help me out. I had unlimited access to Xanax. Mm -hmm. So Xanax and alcohol were kind of my, how I got through things. And, um, not knowing enough, I thought, you know, I've made accidental overdoses on the job, you know? And so I thought, well, that would be a way I'm just going to take as many Xanax as I think I can take and drink as much alcohol as I think I can take. Well, fortunately, Really, all that does, unless you really take a cut off amount, is make you really sick. Yeah. Uh, I thought maybe I wouldn't wake up the next morning. And uh, so I did. I tried. And that happened. You did that. Yes, I did that. And uh, like I said, all it did was make me really, really, really sick. Um, and, uh, woke up the next morning, um, laying in the, my, this apartment I had, laying in the middle of the living room floor. Uh, ringing wet and sweat. Um, so I, uh, I called, I, I just, I think right then I thought once I established, I was still here and present. I thought, man, there is, that fell completely off. That's okay. He tried to, he tried to fix it and it just fell off. So I didn't know if it needs to be up there or not. So, you know, it was just, I was laying there and I thought, and there's no way, and not thinking I thought there's no way, and I know it's a lot of thought people think about a purpose in life and what's your purpose. I did. I later and thought, man, there's no way this is the life I'm supposed to be living. Uh, this is no way this is my purpose in life. And I wasn't talking about the blessing I get now to go speak to people and stuff. I was thinking my my purpose was to be a good father, good husband, a good friend, and and I wasn't doing any of those. And so I called my wife at. Uh, I don't know, six in the morning. I don't know when it was. From the, from the apartment. From the apartment. And just told her, I said, I want to, that's the first thing I, you know, our phone conversations weren't real friendly at that point. And so when she picked up the phone, it was like, you know, what do you want? It wasn't like, hello. It wasn't like, she said, what do you want? And I said, I want to come home. And uh, I'm doing pretty good maintained today. I usually get super emotional thinking about it because I, I, uh, I don't know where I would be or where I wouldn't be if she hadn't have said, come on that was her yeah. she didn't even hesitate she just said come home so you, i read a quote where you once said 
during during this time, mm-hmm. this, this this seventeen months, you said I was shocked when I reached out. How many people were reaching back? That second part of how how many people were reaching back. Mm-hmm. Aaron also had her own struggles, probably still does. Right. Um, and she also said something similar. She said, I was lucky that I had such a good family and that they were there for me. With people who have gone through what she's gone through mm-hmm. and people who go through what you've gone through, how big a role do you think that support network plays in, in the ability of that person to be able to survive? It is absolutely essential. Um, that's what I tell people. When I, was, when I say I was shocked because it's every person that I pushed away, that I told to get the F out of my life and my face, those were the ones who, when I reached out for help, finally started, those are the ones calling and supporting and checking in and taking care of, you know, things. And those were the people that were there for me. Um, when I, when I get to speak these days at the end of my presentation, I always show a picture of my family and I tell people, I say, when you look at, and I'm usually speaking to first responders and, uh, I tell people, I said to most of y'all, y'all think I'm just showing a picture of my family. Well, I'm not, I'm showing you a picture of who's going to be there when it's all said and done. When you're done with your career, when you're done with, you know, I always tell them Chris Fields did 31 years, seven months, and 16 days with the Oklahoma City Fire Department. That's right. I had that written down. (laughs) I retired March 1st of 2017. On March 2nd, they promoted somebody and put them in my seat, and Oklahoma City Fire Department has not missed a beat, and they they will not. I feel like that's one of the biggest lessons in life that that everybody's replaceable. It, it, It. that's why I try to tell them it doesn't, and it doesn't mean don't be the best firefighter, the best medic, the best police officer right. you can be while you're doing the job. And it's still, it's not who you are. It's what you do. And, and it's who you are while you're doing it. I will give you that. I don't try to take away from it. I would do this job all over again. But at the end of the day, that family and those f- close friends are the ones that are going to be there. Um, and it's not, it's not, it, it's not that fire chiefs don't care, cities don't care. It's just the nature of the beast. It's just how it is. They yeah. got a city to run. They got a fire department to run. So it doesn't matter how great a medic, firefighter, police officer you are. No police department, fire department, hospital is going to shut down because you leave. Yeah. And that's who's going to be there at the end of the day. And I was just very fortunate that mine were there. Uh you know, and I always tell, uh, and Cheryl will tell people, my wife, that our marriage being strong as it is now is actually a blessing. It's just a added additional blessing. Like she said, she did, had no idea that we were going to be able to reconcile and that our marriage would be like it is today. Is this the picture that you show? Yeah, that's... I've, uh, I've seen this one a well, couple that's, times. Well, that's one. That's the day I retired. That was at my retirement. I don't like. I don't know how I feel about that Houston hat. Yeah, my son's a Houston fan. I'm a Tampa Bay Rays fan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Well, and, my son's a Houston. I'm Red Sox. My other son's Yankees. Oh, so, God, we hate all three of you. Yeah, so we have a great time during <laughs> baseball season. We're all Sooners, though, so that's a good thing. Yeah, but well, uh, <laughs> there, there, you, there you go. But uh, I just tell people that's who's going to be there at the end of the day. And like I was, I was talking about my wife, talking about our marriage. She had no 
idea that we were going to be able to reconcile and the marriage is going to be like it is today. But like she said, it didn't matter. She wanted me to be, to be healthy so I could be present for my boys, you know? And so right. and that makes me emotional thinking about that, that that was her, you know, like she said, we may never, we may be divorced. We may, she said, but that doesn't mean I don't want you healthy and be present for your boys. Mm. And that's what I say. It's just so the fact that I'm still married and get to see these guys all the time. I mean, cause it could, you know, sometimes divorces don't always end that well, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I'm just fortunate to be, and I just tell everybody, that doesn't mean that your marriage is going to be saved or it's going to be great. But as long as you're here, the main focus is you and mm-hmm. getting healthy and the family, the family is, you know how they also say dispatchers were for so long, the forgotten first responders, right? <clears throat> well, when firefighters or first responders are struggling, the family is who's forgotten. And I tell you, it's just a, it's the family's always forgotten how it affects the family. I mean, I left them in shambles, you know, they didn't know what to do. Uh, so it does affects the family. And I think they're often forgotten. Um, I love that now first responder academies and stuff are having family night. And so mm-hmm. the, I mean, that's just a huge, it doesn't mean that your spouse is going to be the one you talk to when you need to talk to somebody. But it right. means that spouse is going to understand what you're going through. And that spouse, I always tell people, there's things they can learn to say and things they learn not to say, you know, but it's understanding That's where you're coming point. from. And the communication is is huge. I think I think you already answered this at the beginning, and, and it doesn't sound like it's you. But do you think the, that you, back in 1985, joined the fire department because you needed – meaning in your life do you think that that was a driving force or do you think it was something else um no i don't think i needed meaning in my life but it was a job that uh like i say growing up kind of around it not in it but growing up around it Mm -hmm. man those dudes that i grew up around they loved giving back they loved helping the public yeah they did i mean they got good recognition but it was just a um it was just, a, I don't know, and I think it's a special, whether you're EMS, cop, fire department, if you're going to make it in this job for, like, man, you got to have a heart for it. It's a calling. Mm-hmm. You, you see people say, I'm going to get on, it's good benefits, good, and they end up hating the job, or they, they don't get a good career out of it. I just think to do the job, what we do, to see what we see, hear the things we hear, and then to put up with all the stuff that comes from administration and from the city all the bs we put up with and still love the job man i'm telling you it takes a special person with a special heart well here's here's the reason that i ask so this is a this is this is a nerdy channel that has (laughs) a heavy focus on on research Mm -hmm. data and evidence and I, I do feel like most EMS agencies, fire departments, law enforcement, there certainly seem to be waking up to this mm-hmm. over the last, you know, 10, 10, 10, 15 years in offering resources, some better than others. Um, you, you know, a lot of big fire departments have always had the faith-based mm-hmm. chaplain. But the other things, I mean, more of critical incident stress debriefing and and just educating at the beginning right. and stuff like that. They're doing a lot of things like that. And um, EAP and employee assistance stuff and trying right. to pay for therapy and and kind of removing the stigma. And I think that those things are all all great. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and I think that that happens because the assumption is that these career fields drive people to kill themselves. And we do a lot of things in our career field because we assume that this is the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. We put people on backboards for 40 years. <laughs> we don't really do it anymore. And I mean hardly hardly at all. But it certainly makes sense, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. We You used to tell people that. I used to tell, oh, man, if you kind of put them on a backboard because just – if it's just not right, they can have a bullet right next to their spine, and then you you can move them. And well, we don't we don't do that anymore, especially if they have a bullet in them. We mm -hmm. we would never put them on a backboard anymore because of the science. Well, there's there's very little science on this, um, but there's some preliminary data um, across the country and across the world that kind of suggests the opposite. That suggests that. Maybe it's not so much that the career is driving these good people to kill themselves, that the career attracts people who are prone to killing themselves in the first place. Have you ever heard that before? I have heard that. And I'll tell you this, and, I, I'll, and I'll talk about it now. I didn't, I usually always talk about it and intentionally leave it out. But most of your first responders, they're, what's the deal? 85%. I think, or 80%. It's a pretty high number. Mm -hmm. And I can speak for myself. Uh, that we get into the first responder world, have experienced some type of childhood trauma. So they want to be protectors. In my case, I was molested when I was 10 years old. And that's part of my story. I tell it, I tell it. And I'm not just telling it now because, I, I mean, I don't, didn't intentionally leave it out. But it's now that we're talking about the why of first responders. So I think that, they say that, and I don't know what the percentage was. I may have been high there, but it's a pretty large percentage of first responders have experienced some type of, some type of childhood trauma. So they become protectors. So they're already bringing mm -hmm. some type of trauma to the job with them. And it's just exacerbated by the calls we make. And I think a lot of times, too, people forget that they talk about, well, they've seen this, they've done this. And they're not even talking about that. They forget we're actually humans that have a home life, that have other mm -hmm. personal stuff. You know, we have personal loss. You know, we have personal trauma along with the fire department trauma or first responder trauma, childhood trauma, if you bring that, which according to the research, they say a large percentage do because now you want to be that protector. Right. Uh, you don't openly think, I'm going to do this job to protect. I mean, it's just well, it's you, your nature. You, what you're saying is, is, is exactly what some of this – preliminary data is suggesting yeah um you've got a list i'm sure you got a list i've got a list this long and i can <laughs> sit here and name names of all the people i've known who've committed suicide my mother committed suicide when i was 15 you know but when it comes to um first first responders i mean i could sit here and just, my, zach back there you could yeah we could rat, rattle off these names um and i would bet now, it's very speculative sitting mm -hmm. here right now, but I would bet that there is a common theme before they ever even got in to this law enforcement or fire or EMS in the first place. And I just wonder if maybe more efforts should be focused there than, than after. It doesn't mean that I don't, doesn't mean that the, 
you, you know, offering resources afterwards is a bad thing. Right. I don't, I don't mean that. I think we're neglecting the major the majority, um, because there's lots of other fields that see bad stuff. Right. They're not often themselves in record numbers like they are with with cops, firefighters, and um, EMS and, and paramedics right. and, and EMS. Um, and some people get into some of those career fields. I mean, what's the driving force for so many people to become a physician? It, it's right. it's money and prestige. And I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Right. Um, and yeah, there's I'm sure there's an altruistic thing in there for a lot of doctors, and I'm, I'm not picking on picking on physicians or anything. Um, but a lot of them, they want to have a good career. They want to make a lot of money. They want to um, um, be prestigious. They want to be a physician. No, right. no, no problem at all. Um, and they see the same things that we see. Right. But they're not often themselves like we right. are. And I think their driving force to get into their 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 profession was different than ours. Um, and I, I I wish we could discuss that more. Right. And, and where I'm telling you that preliminary data is coming from is uh, entry um, entry assessments to some paramedic programs and schools across the world. Uh, and when I say assessment, like psychological assessments, right. similar to, you know, you get hired. Why does Oklahoma City do a psychological? Right on everybody who who they hire kind of this kind of the same reason but we don't do that way at the beginning when they're actually going to school right. and there's some data coming out that's showing that these people coming into schools are coming in for what we call the hero factor and this is kind of a term that's starting to show up of are you here because you watched live pd <laughs> And you want to be that hero, or you've watched um, what's the one out of New Orleans Night Night Watch, yeah. and and you, you want to be a hero, or are you here because you truly want to do good in the world, like like you're saying with right. with, with so many people. And I think they're two groups, two different groups of people. Oh, without a doubt, and uh, without a doubt. But that's interesting. You talking about that the that I guess that kind of goes hand in hand. You talking about they're maybe predisposed to. Comp- complete suicide versus, you know, like I said, they're bringing trauma. And I don't mean that they're born that way. Right. I, right. I mean, other, just be, other before things they, in their life. Right. Yeah. And I, that's why I think it's important now, like Oklahoma city fire in their rookie school. Now they, it's only a day or two, but at least it's a day or two that they talk about mental health. Now Right. Uh, they'll have people come in and they even have financial advisors come in to talk to the young and young to help them out. Mm-hmm. Oklahoma city just hired a uh, fire has a, uh, licensed coalition lady now that's part of the matter of fact i'm gonna go meet with her next week we're gonna talk about retirees that's great <laughs> and that's uh great. but i think it's all this early i won't say prevention that's not a good word early i don't know talk to them while they're young on the job versus wait until well they say let's get them before they get in the river instead of down here trying to pull them out of the river right let's get to them before they jump in the river right so absolutely. i think a lot of that stuff that they're doing now is uh is uh, I wish some of it would have been around. I don't know if it would have changed anything in my life, but if it had been around knowing there was avenues or knowing it's okay to feel that way, like right. say, remove the stigma and all those other cliche statements there are because the, um, the amount of uh, completed suicides now amongst retirees is starting to. Is it? Yeah. It's a uh, matter of fact, two of the two suicides that I can, that I had firsthand accounts of were both retirees from Oklahoma city. 
and uh, it's just important, man. Like I said, I'm going to go talk, visit with her, uh, start talking about maybe a way to address the retirees and, and make sure they're still – not av- just forget about them. Right, yeah. and make sure there's still an avenue out there for them, you right. know. So. So, so what does Chris Fields do today? Chris Fields today does podcasts. No. Uh, he, well, welcome uh, <laughs> to the Dr. Medic podcast. No, uh, man, I am um, – well, my main deal right now is I'm a, I'm a brand-new papa. Well, right. i got a grandson now. He's a year old. So that's my main thing. Super cool. Um, another thing is I'm, I'm hooked up with three or four other guys. Um, I'll mention their names real quick. Chris Gallen, okay. <laughs> retired Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, detective, police officer. He established all the peer support stuff for Norfolk and helped write all the stuff for uh, Virginia Leap Law Enforcement Assistance Program. Um, uh, and these guys are badasses. He was like on Condoleezza Rice's security team. He's been undercover in, over in South America and stuff, DEA, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, Doug Monda, he's retired COCO uh, police, DEA. John McCain, sniper guy. I mean, he was, and then Raul Rivas, Orlando PD, a Pulse nightclub SWAT guy. Uh, Rich Creamer, another guy from Norfolk, Virginia. But anyway, we have a group we're called Trauma Behind the Badge, and uh, right, I get to do some individual speaking. I get quite a few calls to go speak at uh, first responder conferences. Right, but sometimes, like we're going September to the. And I'm going to try to say where we're going. We're going to September somewhere in Maryland. Right. Um, national. It's a cop deal, but I get to go. I'm, I'm the only firefighter in the group. Oh, good. So, uh, but uh, we're called Tron Behind the Badge. Yeah, there we go. TronBehindTheBadge.us. So make sure you get the website right. Say it again. Uh, www.TronBehindTheBadge.us. Okay. And, uh, and what do people find when they get here? Well, they'll find a little bit about us, about what we do. Uh, anybody that, uh, yeah, there's all of our little uh, deals that we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, click on the about, it'll tell what we're about. Man, we just offer, uh, we have a uh, weekly webinar, Tuesday nights. We haven't been on in a while because we've all been traveling. A lot of times we'll do how it. Do, how do they access that? It's uh, If you go to the website okay. and register. Okay. Uh, you'll get an email. It says by Zoom link. Okay. So we do it live. And we have uh, first responders on there with great stories. We have clinicians on there. We talk about sleep deprivation. We talk about physical fitness. We talk about, you know, everything. Um, we just had uh, a gentleman on, and uh, he was uh, – he's actually still kind of in witness protection, but he's uh, he was undercover. His, no kidding? Yeah, his story was uh, – Really, from where the Sopranos came from, he uh, he infiltrated the undercover the mo- uh, crime families. Mm-hmm. But he went through some, you know, uh, stuff. Uh, Giovanni, his name, and uh, he's got a book out called Giovanni. It's a great book. Uh, but anyway, so we have the we have different guests on, and um, and then we're blessed too. We get to go. Sometimes we get to go all four together speak, and uh, we work with them. And another website is. Uh, www.survivefirst.us. Okay. And Survive. I bring that up. Because, How do you spell first? Uh, the, F- wor- the word? Yeah, F-I-R-S-T. Okay. And the reason I bring that up is uh, one of the gentlemen in here, when you pull up the names here, Doug Monda, mm-hmm. he started Survive First several years ago. Um, nonprofit takes the no out of first responders getting treatment. And it's usually a financial uh, 
wall that's keeping them from getting treatment, whether it be, uh, you know, most of them will say, well, I can't afford the flights out there or co-pays or whatever. And I'm, I'm on the board with them at Survive First. Doug and his wife have done this, and they've created such a network that we take no out of first responder getting a treatment. Like he says, you get a first responder to finally reach out, his life cannot be compromised. You need to be able to say, we're going to get you on a flight here. We'll get you this trip. We fly around the country. Matter of fact, I'm going next in two weeks out to California to vet facilities. We don't just say, hey, here's, you know, Bob and Joe's tack and horse feeding first responder facility. We vet them. And uh, that's what we do, man. We just spend the, spend our days taking care of first responders. We all give out our personal phone numbers, tell people to call them 24-7. Um, just got a call the other day from a guy in local town here. They had a guy needing help and got him hooked up with a clinician and all that kind of stuff. So right, right. that's, that's just what we do. And we, uh, we have this show to bring awareness to say, you're not alone. Look at all these people. It's perfectly normal. Every emotion, uh, Chris Scallum, one of the guys that's on there, he's now, once he retired, he went back and got his, he's a clinician now and all that kind of stuff. So man, it's just a, it's a, it's a great time. So if people come to this website and they click, uh, they cl- they click register up there, mm-hmm. you, they'll get a Zoom link sent to them every week, and then on Tuesday, Tuesday nights Tuesday at nights. seven p.m. Eastern, and then um, they can participate or they're just watching. Uh, or? They can participate. It has the uh, the people that are watching, right? And then they can type in questions, or, okay, and they can chime in. It's kind of uh, it's and it kind of varies. Like sometimes you'll see we'll have like thirty people watching. Right. But then we'll have more people watching on the YouTube channel or the Facebook Live. I'm sorry. They right. do it on Facebook Live and then they can do replays too. Okay. Uh, so it's, um, that's one of the shows we had right there. Uh, Till Valhalla. Yeah. There are people that do, uh, they make blades and knives and stuff for first responders, but, but they have groups come out like first responders mm-hmm. to find a hobby, to find something to do. They show them how to craft and they'll make a, They'll make a knife with their either something special to them or something like uh, one guy made one and the handle is all uh, uh, some of the granite from the Oklahoma City bombing. But he made a, a handle out of that, but he made his own knife. And that's, so that's wild. That's but they cool. do it for therapy, you know, yeah. kind of like riding horses or whatever. Sure. Equine therapy uh, is what they do. They're uh, they're amazing people. All right. So that's so, what we do, man. I try yeah. to stay busy and stay out of trouble. Yeah. So <laughs> let, last question. You've got somebody around the world. There, there, there's a firefighter somewhere who's thinking about killing themselves mm-hmm. right now, or or paramedic, or or something. If you could, if you could say something to them right now in this moment while they're thinking about it, mm-hmm. what would you tell them? First of all, I tell them, you know, don't do it. You're, um, you're. I t- and it was hard for me to imagine that. Like I say, you're not alone. You're not a unicorn. Um, it was huge for me when I went to treatment to see, which I do. I know we didn't talk about that, but when I went to treatment to see that I wasn't the only one feeling that way, that every every emotion they're feeling physically, spiritually, you know, everything, even the, even the thoughts of uh, suicide, man, they're perfect for the things we've seen, the things we've done. And any other, it's, you're, you're perfectly normal. You're not any different than any other first responder around the world having those feelings to trauma. 
Uh, I always tell people, you know, in our profession, we can't avoid trauma. We can't be, we can't avoid being affected by trauma, whether it's vicarious trauma, secondary trauma, that we take on these other people's trauma that we run on. But you're no different and just reach out. And if, if I was actually, I mean, I give out my personal number. I tell them to call me. Um, there's been times when I've almost not answered. Like it'll say, and my wife will say, hey, you told people you'd answer it 24-7. And gave out that number. Yeah, and I'll answer it. And sometimes it's a spam risk call or a spam call. But there's mm-hmm. been times when I've picked it up. And I've got a gentleman that calls me from, uh, I won't even say the, the town. I don't want Casey ever listens to this. I don't think I'm giving his info out. I've never met the man. But in his phone, I, I mean, in my phone, I have him as that town. And I have him as Bob. I don't even think right. his name might be Bob. But when that pops up, and sometimes he'll call, and that's how it started. He called one time. He heard me speak at a conference. And uh, I picked it up. Never met him, never seen him. Couldn't tell you if he walked through that door. But sometimes he'll call, and we'll talk for an hour. Sometimes we'll talk for 10 minutes. And sometimes when he calls me, it was perfect. I needed the call. You know, Isn't that funny how that works? Yeah, it's crazy. And uh so I can say, and that's all it takes sometimes, just a conversation. He doesn't call me because he's, you know, thinking about, you know, suicide or anything. So he'll just call sometimes because he's had a day that wasn't, I hate the word bad day. So he had a day that wasn't as good as another. And he'll just call, man, we'll talk for, like I say, sometimes it's 10 minutes, sometimes it's an hour. That's but, nuts, uh, man. It, it's, it's it, you know, I say it often that the, um, the cyclical nature of the universe and our world, uh, and you know, you spend so much time, especially as a firefighter like you or um, somebody who's a cop or something like you spend so much time putting out all this positive energy mm-hmm. out there into the world to help people. I think that there's just so many there's so many responders that just feel like it's not coming back, right? Um, and what you ju- what you just said is a perfect example of. That it, that it does come back. You just have to be patient. Right. That you, you might spend a lifetime um, going through the muck, uh, you know, put, just spilling your guts all day long trying to help other people. Um, but if you reach out, people will help. People right. will be there. They will come back. All that all that love and energy and, and positivity that you put out, um, it'll come back. And, I, and I'll say this, that um – one of the most important things for first responders, self-care. Self-care is not selfish. If you're not participating or taking some time for self-care, then you can't be that person you want to be. As first responders, we want to be there for everybody. We want to take a bad situation and make it better. Well, if we're not taking care of ourselves, which is not selfish at all, then we're going to, we're going to get to the point where we can't be there for other people. Um, you know, I have some self-care now. I, I, I do some meditation. I do, uh, if you're float therapy, like the, like the super salty water. It is. I've done that. It's It's, nuts. It's crazy. It's my, it's a, it's a bit mind blowing. I I go one up here North class and curve up there. It's the only one I found. I went, I went to one on the North side too. It's further North. Yeah. But it's a float therapy. They say that, um, and that Chris Scallon, that buddy of mine, he lives in Virginia beach and right there where all the Naval stuff is and everything. I think he said how many the Navy bought because those guys, when they go on deployment or come back, I think 45 minutes in float therapy is equal to eight hours of REM sleep. Oh, I bet. So I, I could imagine. 
and they do hyperbaric chambers. They do all this kind of stuff, but there's so many, so many avenues out there and resources. Uh, my youngest son, who's 24 now, when he was at OU, I assumed he was a partier guy. I don't know. Uh, I can't imagine a son of mine partying in college, but I'd always tell him, I'd say, there are so many resources out there. There's no reason I should get a call about you being arrested for a DUI. Are you involved in an accident? Because there's, there's, uh, Uber, mm-hmm. there's Lyft, there's rideshare, there's all these resources. And that's what I tell first responders, uh, versus 20 years ago. There are so many resources out there that are available. And sometimes it's just simple as talking. Just because you go talk to somebody about maybe an issue that's or something that's eating at you, it doesn't mean you're going to be diagnosed with anything or you have to go to treatment, mm-hmm. you know, or anybody's going to know. Um, that's what it's just, uh, there's just so many resources out there today. That's good stuff. That's well said, man. Um, Appreciate you coming in. Oh, you bet, man. Enjoyed it. Lennon, you got any questions? <laughs> Are you awake? Yeah. Zach, you got you got anything from Mr. Fields? We appreciate you coming in, man. We'll do it again. Uh, outstanding, man. Enjoy right, it. Dude. Appreciate it. Ow, my ears. <laughs>